before I read our scripture for today, let's seek God's help. Our Father, we long to see Jesus, to understand what he's done for us, and to live in light of his work. Amen. Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10? If you're looking at the Bible in your row, you'll find it on page 1006. As you're turning there, this past Wednesday evening, I came out of a meeting and I had several texts on my phone from folks in this congregation letting me know that the final Jeopardy question on Wednesday evening was, Paul, I guess it was technically the answer, but that gets confusing. Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. And the correct answer, according to Jeopardy, was what is Hebrews? It sparked quite a debate among theology nerds on the interwebs this week uh, because very few scholars today actually believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, some believe it was Luke, most like me, except that we, we just don't know. What we do know is that God knows, and if God had wanted us to know, we would know. So we don't need to speculate. Yeah, it's one of several things we don't know about this letter. We don't know who the author was, but we also don't know who the recipients were. Uh, we know that they were probably a small church, maybe a house church, of Jewish Christians sometime in the mid-60s A.D., just before the destruction of the temple. And we don't even actually know that Hebrews was a letter. I, I tend to believe it was a sermon preached by the pastor of that group, and he was exhorting them to fix their eyes upon Christ. See, what we do know is that for those early believers to whom this letter was directed, their worlds were falling apart. We're going to see this later in chapter 10, but due to persecution from, from the Roman government, some of them had already lost property, some of them had already lost their, their freedom, and more loss was sure to follow at the hands of the Roman government. And the members of the church are asking some really hard questions, the kind of questions you ask in times of struggle and suffering. Where is God in all of this? Does he not care that his children are suffering? And you know, some of them likely wondered, are we suffering because God is angry with us for leaving Judaism? And what we know is that some who had been part of this church had already begun to depart. They had already gone back to Judaism, to the comforts of the Jewish life that they'd already known. And the rest are wondering, is, is that what we should do? Should, should we go back as well? Is following Christ worth what it's going to cost me? And the purpose of Hebrews is to answer that question with a resounding Yes, absolutely a million times yes. Jesus is worth it. He's worth whatever it costs you to follow him. He is worth it and infinitely more. Yes, Jesus is worthy. And that's going to be the, the context of, of every passage that we read here, but especially Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, our, our scripture for this morning. Listen now to the reading of God's word. 
For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me of, the, uh, of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We're four days away from Thanksgiving, and I don't know what that means for you, but for me, that means that uh, for about three weeks now, Christmas movies have been playing in my house. And, And I know some of you really love them. And the reason some of you love them is because you know exactly what to expect. Uh, Every one of them, there's no surprises. Small town guy meets big city girl. They don't like each other at first, but by the end, they're in love, and they've both rediscovered the Christmas spirit. But have you ever watched a movie in which you follow the storyline, you think you know what's getting ready to happen, and then you get to the end, and you get smacked in the face with a surprise ending so unexpected you never would have guessed it? But then you watch it again, and you think it was there all along. They were giving me hints all along the way, and I should have known, but I just didn't see it. Uh, Some of you may remember the movie The Sixth Sense, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to ruin the movie for those of you that haven't seen it, but it's 23 years old, so if you haven't seen it by now, you probably were not going to watch it, but it's in the movie. Bruce Willis is a child psychologist, and he's helping a young boy 
this young boy is, claims that he can see dead people. And, and that's the whole movie, just, just Bruce Willis trying to help this kid get over his visions of dead people. And you get to the end of the movie, and suddenly Bruce Willis realizes, and then you realize, that he too is actually one of the dead people. It's really an incredibly unexpected twist. It's one of the few movies I've ever seen that just totally caught me off guard. And then you go back and you watch it and you think, it was there all along. They were giving us hints. I just didn't know what to look for. I think that's a great illustration of how the Old and New Testaments relate to each other. In the Old Testament, there were almost endless ceremonies and rituals and offerings and sacrifices commanded by God. And most people thought that it was by offering those sacrifices and keeping those ceremonies and rituals that that's how they were saved. If we just do these things, then we'll be saved. But it couldn't. It was never enough. It was endless. But the good news is those rituals and those ceremonies and those sacrifices were not intended to save us. They weren't intended to take away our sin. What they were intended to do is point to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the one who would one day come to take away our sin once and for all. And so you read the New Testament If you had never read the New Testament, you knew the Old Testament, you might not have seen all that. You might have thought that keeping the laws and doing the sacrifices was what you needed to be saved. And then you come to the New Testament and you say, you know, it was there all along. I should have seen it, but I missed it. It was there all along. Well, the problem for these Hebrew believers who left everything to follow Christ, and now some of them are starting to think about going back to Judaism, is they've forgotten that the whole point of the Old Testament, the whole point of the Old Covenant was to point to Christ. It it was all about him. It was all laying a foundation for understanding who he would be and what he would come to do. And the purpose of our passage today is like so many others in Hebrews. It's a reminder, don't go back Don't go back to those old systems and those old ways. Don't go back to Judaism because all of it pointed to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And the way the argument works itself out in our text is is in three ways. The first thing we see is the imperfect system, the imperfect system. Second, we'll see the perfect Savior. And then third, we're going to see how in Christ we are made perfect. So first, the first thing the author wants us to see is that the Old Covenant was a very imperfect system. Now, if it was taken the way it was intended, which was to point to Christ, then it did a very good job of that. But when people began looking to the Old Covenant, keeping the law as if it could save them, they realize, or they should have realized, that what it does is it dumps them out onto this eternal treadmill of empty religious duty. And he outlines several of the imperfections of the Old Covenant. In other words, you know, there's several reasons why it w- couldn't make you perfect. Even all of that law-keeping and all of those sacrifices, they could not make you perfect. And so he outlines them in our, in our passage. The first imperfection is 
endless repetition. Look at verse 1. For since the law had but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are drawing near. In other words, if those sacrifices had worked to take away sin, then why would they have to be offered again and again and again? And we're talking thousands of sacrifices through the years, maybe millions of sacrifices through the years. So if they could take away sin, why would you keep doing them? But the point was they couldn't take away sin. And so it's been 1,400 years since God prescribed those sacrifices through Moses, and they were still having to be done again and again. And that points to a second imperfection of the old covenant system, and that is that it couldn't take away guilt. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? You know, if even one of those millions of animals sacrificed through the years had been able to take away sin, then the sacrifices would have ceased. But there is still, it's saying here, among men, a lingering consciousness of their sin. Another way of saying it is we still have guilty consciences. We still have the stain of sin upon our minds. Now, not everybody has a guilty conscience. We should, apart from knowing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, we should all have guilty consciences, but not everybody does. C.S. Lewis was once joking with a friend, and he wrote about this conversation. He said, we were talking about cats and dogs. And we decided both of them have consciences, but the dog, being an honest, humble being, always has a guilty conscience. But the cat, being a Pharisee, always has a good conscience. And when the cat sits and stares at you, he's thanking God that he is not like those dogs or even like these humans with their guilt. You may be like a dog who has a guilty conscience. You may be like a cat who ignores conscience. But the objective truth is that all of our consciences testify to the guilt of sin. And no animal sacrifice can wipe that guilt away. That's the third imperfection of the old covenant. It only served as a reminder of sins. Look at verse 3. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. So you'd go to Passover, you'd go to the Day of Atonement, you'd go to the regular sacrifices. And in a sense, as you come walking up and the priest looks at you as you bring your sacrifice, it's as if God's saying, well, what'd you do now? Look who it is. You couldn't make it a week, could you? You couldn't make it a year, could you? Because the the sacrifices testify to the guilt of sin. And verse 4 explains why. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away human sin. But that points us to an even greater imperfection of the old covenant system, which is that mere external obedience isn't what God desired. In other words, you could offer millions of sacrifices in your life. You could devote every dime to sacrificing bulls and goats for your sin, and it could never once take it away. But that's the point, is that's not what God desired. 
in those sacrifices. He wasn't trying to barter with you so that you would pay money for sacrifices and then he would owe you salvation. You see, mere external obedience isn't what God desired. Look at at verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Now that sounds interesting because God was the one that commanded those things. He's the one that commanded the sacrifices and the offerings. But we have to understand what God wanted wasn't merely animal blood. It wasn't merely for us to check a box by making a sacrifice and getting on with our week. He was actually showing us that nothing that we did could atone for our own sin. Not even those sacrifices. You know, King David understood this after his, his repentance from sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David says, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God. In other words, what God wants from you is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Amos was saying the same thing. You can present all your, or excuse me, Micah, in our Old Testament reading, Micah was saying the same thing. You can present offering after offering, but what God wants is your heart. He's not interested in animal blood. He's interested in the heart of the worshiper. See, that was the mentality. Let's go to the temple, the tabernacle, whatever it was at the time. Let's pay our money for the sacrifice. The priest will will shed its blood. I can check the box, and I am good with God until next time. God takes no pleasure in heartless worship. That's just checking boxes. That's why Jesus repeated what Isaiah had already said to the people. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Sacrifices were to be a reflection of the condition of the heart. It was a display to the people that sin deserves death. And so as you took your sacrifice week after week or month after month or year after year, it was, it was, it was the worshiper, a sincere worshiper's way of saying, this is what I deserve because of my sin. And God says, that's what the sacrifices were intended to produce. A sense of need and contrition and humility. But of those millions of sacrifices through 1,400 years, most didn't produce humble, repentant worshipers. They were just empty religious duties. Let me ask you before we move on, are you and I ever guilty of the same thing? Of course, we're not bringing the blood of bulls and goats in here. But how often do we view our Christian duties of showing up to church, uh, of, of maybe time in the Word, of, of, of tithing, whatever it is, thinking, if I just do these things, it'll get God off my back. I can check off God for the week. So that's not what God desires. That's not worship. That's manipulation. If I do this, then God owes me something. What God desires is humble, contrite, worshiping hearts. And that's what the old covenant didn't produce. In fact, and here's what I want you to see. The biggest imperfection of the old covenant wasn't the old covenant itself. The biggest imperfection was our hearts. 
And the biggest imperfection was, was us. And no amount of religious duty can ever make us presentable to God. So that's the first thing we see, the imperfection of that system. The second thing I want you to see against that backdrop is the brilliant perfection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that was a very imperfect system. It could never in a million years present you perfect. But look at what Jesus did. In a sense, Hebrews is giving us a resume of what Jesus has done here that qualifies him to be our Savior. First, we see he did the will of the Father perfectly. Look at at, at Hebrews 10 verse 7. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. This is a reference back to Psalm 40. But instead of the lips of David, it's applied to the lips of Christ here. And Christ is saying, my father, those Old Testament sacrifices have proven unsatisfactory because, yes, the people brought them, but their hearts they left at home. Yes, they spilled the blood of animals, but they did not give you their hearts. And so you've prepared a body for me that I may be pleasing to you. You know, we, we mentioned that problem with sacrifices is people could bring the sacrifice and leave their hearts at home. But the Lord Jesus, at every moment of his life, delighted to do his Father's will. You can hear it in that verse. Behold, I've come to do your will. This is why I came to earth. This is what I live for. Jesus not only obeyed his father, but he delighted in his father. And that's what made the sacrifice of Christ such a pleasing aroma to God the Father. Because Jesus delighted to do his father's will. And why does that matter for you and me today? Because Jesus perfectly accomplished what God desired from you and me. Jesus' joyous commitment to obey his Father, even to the point of death, is exactly what God the Father desires from us. And Christ offered that perfectly on our behalf. He joyfully did the will of his Father on our behalf. And then second, he perfectly made atonement for us. Do you know the root of the word atonement? It means to be literally at one with one another. Atonement is speaking of a relationship that was once broken, but now restored or made at one. They're in agreement. They're reconciled to one another. And through Christ, our relationship with God has been perfectly restored. We are now at one with him. That's why verse 18 says there's no longer any offering for sin. It's just not necessary anymore because Christ has done everything needed to reconcile us to the Father. Look at verse 11 for a moment. I want you to see something that kind of looks incidental at first. It looks like it's not a big deal, but it's actually really important. It shows us what Christ has done. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sins, which can, uh, same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Now, 
why did priests stand daily? Well, for the same reason that moms who are raising young children stand daily, it's because the work is never done. There's always more to do. And that's what was true for the priests. There were no recliners in the tabernacle because the priests never got to sit down. They had to go about their business constantly making more sacrifices, offering more prayers. And none of it could take away sin. Look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? To show us that the work is finished. The sacrifice is done. There's no more sacrifice to be made. In fact, look at verse 13. Not only is he sitting down, but verse 13 says he has a footstool. Only one who is worthy gets a footstool. So he's made atonement. And then third, he saved us from that eternal treadmill of empty, heartless religion. This is the third aspect of Christ's perfection, is that he saved us from that eternal treadmill of empty, heartless religion. I, I love to run. I'm not fast. I may never be fast. I've accepted it. But I do love to run long distances, and I love to look back and see how far I've gone. But I think the most miserable thing in the world is to be on a treadmill because you work really hard and you don't get anywhere. That's how empty religious ritual and self-righteous religion works. You work very hard but make no progress. It's an eternal treadmill. The ceremonial law with all of its endless sacrifices and rules about cleansing and dietary restrictions and regulations about worship, it was more than any person could do. And that was exactly the point, was to show people how badly we need Jesus to keep it on our behalf. That's why the end of verse 9 says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Only Jesus could do enough to get us off of the eternal treadmill of the law, of works righteousness. And I want to ask you, those of you who do not trust in the Lord Jesus today, how do you know if you've done enough? How could you ever know if you have done enough to make yourself right before God? I can tell you the answer to that is you haven't, you can't, and you won't. You can never, by works of the law, make yourself presentable to God, but Jesus on our behalf did that. What's our duty then? Our duty is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Hebrews has been telling that again and again and again and again. We need to fix our eyes on Christ, and that brings us to the third point, We are made perfect in him. We are made perfect in him. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author wants you to see that contrast. Millions of sacrifices through the years couldn't produce perfection, but the one sacrifice of Jesus has made all who look to him by faith perfect. He has 
perfected us. This is an enduring, continuous state that can never be taken away. In other words, hear me on this, beloved. If you trust in Christ, your salvation is a done deal. And that's such good news because oftentimes I talk to folks that visit the church and I'll say something like, um, do you believe that when you die, you'll go to be with Christ? And they will almost always say, I sure hope so. And I'll say, on what grounds? And they'll say, well, I, I've, I've gone to church. I've, I used to be a Sunday school teacher. I did this. I did that. No, no, no. You're stuck on the eternal treadmill if that's the case. But if you're looking to Jesus, there is no I hope so because you have the promise of God that your salvation is a done deal. When Jesus in John 19 upon the cross says it is finished, He's talking about many things on a cosmic uh, spectrum. But one of the things he's talking about is your salvation. He says it is finished. God does not view our salvation on a spectrum that if you're a pretty good person, you can move closer to salvation. Either your sins are forgiven or they are not. If you're trusting in Christ, God has sworn to forgive every sin from the least to the greatest that you've ever committed. You know, just think of the Old Testament imagery of forgiving sin. In, In Psalm 51, David says, blot out our transgression. Mark it out as if it never happened. Psalm 103, separate us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 38, 17 Hide our sins behind your back. That's what what forgiveness is. And it rests upon what God has promised to do because of Christ, not anything you or I do for Christ. Clara Barton was founder of the American Red Cross, and one day a friend reminded Clara of something vicious that someone had done to her years before. But Clara acted as if she'd never heard of the incident. And her friend said, don't you remember when that happened? And Clara said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. She had made a conscious choice to forgive a vicious deed, a conscious choice to continue forgiving even when that deed was brought to mind. That's a picture of God's forgiveness. That means if you belong to Christ, you have been perfected. Your salvation is a done deal, even though you and I are still very imperfect. But when God looks upon you, he sees God's righteousness, uh, Christ's righteousness wrapped up around you like a, a glorious robe. Isn't that easy to forget? And, and sometimes as Christians, I think we look at it this way. I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by what Jesus has done, but now Jesus is just waiting for me to get my act together. And he's always disappointed in me, and he's always frustrated that I can't get my act together. And so when we see our imperfections and our failures, we can get so discouraged and so embarrassed because we forget that when God looks upon Christians, he sees Christ's righteousness. We've got to begin to train ourselves to understand that. That when God looks upon you, Christian, 
he sees Christ's righteousness. For every look at self, Robert Murray McShane says, take 10 looks at Christ, because that's what matters. But that's not all. It's certainly more than enough. The forgiveness that's ours in Christ is more than enough, but it's not all. He doesn't just pronounce us perfect. Look, look at verse 14 again. He, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. In other words, he's also making us perfect. Our status in heaven is that we have been perfected, but our reality is that we are being made perfect for heaven. See, not only did Christ take sin's penalty, but he broke sin's power in our lives. That's why verse 16 says, I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. See, there will be new life when we know Christ. He'll put to death the old ways of the flesh in order to spring forth new fruit of the Spirit in you. There's an amazing illustration with Donald Gray Barnhouse. Barnhouse was one of the most famous preachers in America in the mid-1900s. And just after the end of World War I, Dr. Barnhouse uh, visited the battlefields of Belgium. And for miles, the roads were lined with artillery, with tanks, trucks, every other material of war the Germans had abandoned in their hasty exit. And it was a, a beautiful spring day when Dr. Barnhouse was there, and he was looking around. The sun was shining. The wind was not blowing at all, but he noticed leaves falling from the tree. And he thought how peculiar that was. It wasn't autumn. There wasn't wind, but these leaves were falling. Why would they be falling on such a beautiful spring day? And he thought, well, the trees must be dying. Then he realized what was happening. It wasn't that they were dying, but they were beginning to come alive. As, as the springtime was heating up, the sap was beginning to run, the buds were beginning to, to push from within. And every bit of deadness was being expelled from the tree so that new life could be born. That's the Christian life, isn't it? that Christ puts his spirit in us, he gives us his law and works from the inside out. It's the exact opposite of empty external religion. It's internal, joyful obedience to Christ. It's what happens when God writes his will on our hearts. Our new hearts begin pumping with fresh blood, bringing, bringing once dead extremities to life. He's transforming us so that we can echo the words of the Lord Jesus. Behold, I've come to do your will. This defines every true believer. Not only that we've been forgiven for our sins, but we declare war upon our sins because the new growth of the Holy Spirit pushes out the old dead works of the flesh. And no, sin doesn't die all at once in us, but it starts to be pushed out to make room for new life of sanctification. That's what it means when it says who are being sanctified. We are growing in Christ's likeness. Isn't that an incredible promise that we have both been made perfect and are being made perfect? We've been pronounced perfect and we're being transformed into perfection. It's an incredible promise. But hear me, beloved, it is a promise that comes with a warning. If you show disregard for Christ by continually 
to habitually and impenitently give yourself over to sin. And there is no evidence of that new life within you. No joy to do the Father's will, but you just continue to check off boxes to get God off your back. You should question, have I ever met this Jesus? Why am I not being transformed? If your Christianity is just checking a box off every Sunday so God isn't mad at you, that's not what God's looking for. That's legalism. One commentator said, legalism obeys, but it doesn't adore. And what God desires from you is joyful, delighting obedience to him. Why wouldn't we adore Jesus? What's not to love about him? Even as we just look at this passage, we see that he gives us both forgiveness and he builds in us godliness. And those are the two things you and I need the most. We need forgiveness, and we need to be putting off our old sins and putting on the righteousness of Christ. And friends, you can sit week after week in churches, just like the, same, just like the adherents of Old Testament empty formal worship went to the temple again and again and again. You can come to church again and again and again, go through the motions, and be completely unimpacted and not know God if he sat on your head. If you want to commune with God, if you want to glorify him and enjoy him forever, if you want to have fellowship with God, if you want to live forever in his presence, the only way you can do it is by looking to Jesus. How do we apply this text? First, just the freedom of knowing that we've been forgiven by Christ. We need to live in that forgiveness because it destroys our need for self-justification. How often do you and I get embarrassed by our failures? How often do we get defensive when somebody criticizes us? We do so because we forget what's ours in Christ. We forget that we are pronounced perfect before a holy and righteous God. And if we can understand that, then it melts away that proud exterior that has to vindicate itself, that has to prove itself, that pretends to be perfect. When we understand the perfection of Christ, all that veneer melts away because we're not looking to our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness as our own. Second, you need to remember that spiritual busyness is not synonymous with spiritual effectiveness. Just think about that for a moment. The priests never sat down. They, they worked their fingers to the bone. And yet the scriptures tell us again and again, many of the priests of Israel were unbelievers. It's very possible to be very busy and not know God. Busyness is not what God desires. What he desires is humble, heartfelt gospel obedience. Third, just to to bring back around to what our Hebrew friends were struggling with, that question is the same question some of you are wrestling with. God, why am I suffering? If I belong to Jesus, why am I suffering? Am Am I being punished for something? Am I being punished for something I've done in the past? 
if you are a believer trusting in Christ, God has no punishment left for you. He poured out every last drop of his wrath upon the Lord Jesus for your sake. And so what that means is that everything God does in your life is an act of love. Sometimes it is loving discipline, and it can feel difficult, and it can feel painful. But we need to understand, we do not serve a God. If you're a Christian, you are not serving a God who is constantly disappointed with you, constantly angry, and ready to punish you. He may be disciplining you, but he does so out of love so that you would become more like the Lord Jesus. His every act of love towards you, Christian, is an act of love. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel and the promises of the gospel, and we thank you for the finished work of the gospel that we do not need to add to it. We are not here like the priests, busily trying to do one more thing to reach salvation. We're not like the worshipers of the Old Testament, hoping that one day their sins would finally be taken away. We look back to the Lord Jesus who took away our sins once for all. Oh, Lord, teach us both to rest in the perfection that is ours in Christ and to, be, to enjoy being made increasingly perfect by Christ. We ask that you would fix our eyes upon him in Jesus' name. Amen.